Okay, well, Revelation 12 and 13. Uh, it might seem pretty difficult to find some sort of practical uh, meaning for us in our lives in the 21st century, uh, uh, what we're reading here. But um, not so, because the, the essence of what's going on there in, in Revelation is, in essence, going on in our lives today. Now, I know it's uh, at first blush uh, it seems pretty difficult to make head nor tail really what goes, goes on in Revelation, but on a simplistic level, I'd suggest that what we're seeing in all these visions that John is seeing is a description of events on earth from the perspective of heaven. Occasionally in the Old Testament you get a glimpse of that in Zechariah and uh, in Daniel, in Ezekiel 1, talking about the cherubim, that we're seeing what's going on on earth uh, reflected up in heaven. And all through Revelation, we are, you're seeing that pretty well uh, all the way through, that we're being given visions of how heaven is uh, dealing with what's going on on earth, that situations here on earth are reflected there in heaven. And straight away you can take uh, some comfort from that, that we are in fact not alone, that we are not just uh, experiencing our lives today, um, and we're sort of alone here on this earth, and that when the Lord comes back, the books will be opened and history will kind of be gone through. But actually, the, the struggles and the situations that you have in your life are reflected there in heaven, in this kind of heavenly throne room, in the heavenly sort of court that is sitting right now in heaven. And the situations on earth, our adversaries, uh, whatever kind they may be, are represented there. Now that doesn't mean that there's sin in heaven or sinful angels fighting against good ones or anything like that. What it means is that the whole situation here on earth is being played out, as it were, in the heavenly courtroom with maybe angels uh, in some form representing uh, the situations here on earth that are our Satans, our, our adversaries. Now, I don't want to go into uh, the, the actual interpretation of Revelation in, in uh, great detail in this, uh, in this talk, but I would say that it's, it's clear that the whole thing has huge relevance to the first century. Whatever other relevance it, it may have had throughout history, or even in our last days or in the future still, um, the whole thing is so relevant to what was going on in the first century, the persecution of the Christians by, by the Romans. And the seals and the vials, particularly, are full of allusion to the Olivet Prophecy. And I would really see Revelation as an extension of what the Lord had prophesied in Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark 13, which was talking about what was going to happen in AD 70, the destruction of uh, the Jewish state, the temple, etc. And here in Revelation, I think we have all that sort of uh, fleshed out in, in far greater detail. So we are reading here in Revelation 12 about a, a dragon, and this dragon is also called a serpent. And according to the, the Jewish Encyclopedia and the article there about, uh, about the serpent, they make the point that the serpent would have been understood uh, by, by Jews in the first century as a symbol of the, the wicked one of, of Rome. 
Now, Rome was the great reality of the first century world, and it was symbolized by a dragon. A dragon in itself was not a bad symbol. The Romans used uh, dragons all over the place uh, as symbols of themselves. But then this great and mighty dragon is spoken of here as a serpent. Now, that was not at all how the Romans wished to see themselves. Yes, a mighty, conquering, wonderful dragon, uh, but not a nasty, sly serpent who is going to be uh, set up as a symbol of of the wickedness and and sinfulness which is going to be destroyed by the true king of the universe, that is the Lord Jesus. And so the point has been made that the book of Revelation would have been forbidden literature. It would have been absolutely subversive when the Roman power read it uh, and would have perceived that this is all mocking them, and not only mocking them, but making them out their great wonderful empire to be evil and the enemy of God and the enemy of Jesus. So that the document that we're reading in the book of Revelation, the Apocalypse, is actually a radical document. And, of course, it's no less radical, in a sense, for us today, because we live in a world which does not appear to be so uh, physically, uh, violently aggressive against us as the Roman Empire was against, against the Christians in the first century. But all the same, all the same, the, the degree of tension between the believer and the world is no less today than actually all around us there is this same reality of this world, no matter how you want to interpret that, materialism, love of money, love of pleasure, hedonism, self-centeredness, whatever, is absolutely insidious all over the place. Now, Roman coins depict the, the goddess Roma, the goddess of Rome, as queen of the gods and mother of the world saviour, that is, Caesar. And yet, John speaks in Revelation 18, verse 7, about the, uh, the prostitute who claims to be the queen of the earth. Now, straight away, the first century readers would have perceived that this is talking about this great goddess Roma, that she's actually uh, not queen of the gods, she's a prostitute. And you've got that again here in, in Revelation 12 where it's not the emperor of Rome who slays the dragon and then the the conquered dragon becomes a symbol of Rome. It is the victory of the Lord Jesus on the cross that slays the dragon, uh, which is the the persecutor of God's people, that is, in the first century context, the Roman Empire. And the whole thing is is so radical. I can't think of a better word. It is just a, a radical subversion of the whole world view that people had in the first century. And so for us, if we are truly committed to the Lord, if we are truly his people, there is this colossal difference between us and this world. That this is a world that is not only uh, passive in the sense that it's not going anywhere, it's going somewhere. Everyone in that sense is on a journey, and uh, this world is rushing headlong to destruction. And it's being set up here in, in the most, uh, well, very radical kind of language. I'm sorry to keep using that word, but that's what it is. That this whole system, the whole system they had there in the first century, was actively anti-God, against the Lord Jesus, 
and in that sense against his, his people. So when this dragon is thrown down, there is this rejoicing that the accuser of our brethren has been destroyed. Now this is a legal term, and it's pretty clear that the Christians of the first century were being accused, falsely accused, as in by the devil, the false accuser, uh, in court. And it was the Romans who ran the, the legal system. And yet this happens up in heaven, according to what we've read here in Revelation 12. So what was going on on earth was reflected in the court of heaven. And that's, as I say, I think a comfort, that as life goes on, and it may seem that we are completely alone, and that nobody knows my struggle, nobody understands what you went through at the hands of that person, that system, whatever. You know, that's all been played out in heaven, in front of God himself right now. It's not that, well, when Jesus comes back, yes, uh, he will sort of read the history and think, oh yeah, you poor guy, you, you suffered from uh, your former wife, and oh goodness, you suffered from your, your former husband's kids who, uh, who persecuted you and ripped you off of your property and, and this, that and the other. All that is played out in the court of heaven right now. And in that sense, we are not alone. Okay, let's go on then to Revelation 12, verse 11. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony. And the idea of testimony occurs quite often in Revelation. You've got it again in verse 17, that the faithful are those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. Well, testimony means a, a witness in a legal sense, and just as a, a testimony, as a witness. So, the faithful are characterised by being witnesses. Now, I don't want to say it's, uh, you know, you've got to preach, because we tend to think that preach means to uh, go to foreign lands or another country or whatever and, and start doing dramatic things, and that's, of course, not what it's about at all. Witnessing is in our lives. The point is that we cannot be some sort of passive. Uh, we, we can't, there can't be a situation whereby there is no difference between us and this world. The difference that there is between you and the world around you, the unbelieving world around you, that has got to be evident somehow. It may be a silent witness, but all the same it will be clear that, ah yeah, she's uh, different. That girl in that department, in our office block, is uh, some sort of different. Um, the, the, our witness, in verse 11, is actually by which means we overcome all that is against us. So, witnessing and testifying in our lives, and, and yes, by, by explicit uh, preaching, uh, as we might use the word, uh, that is for our benefit. When you think about it, I mean, God could call people to himself by any means he liked, but he has chosen to use our testimony, our witness, and that is partly for our own benefit. I think that we become aware of what we really believe um, only when we actually have to tell that to somebody else. Uh, we become aware, I think, of who we are by talking about our faith and our hope and our, our loyalty to the Lord Jesus to other people. It is that witness that we make that is, in a sense, for our benefit. I mean, God can call people to himself as he wishes and how he wishes. 
So then, uh, going on there in verse, uh, verse 12, they, uh, sorry, verse 11 again, they overcame him. Now don't forget, this is all uh, up in heaven. In heaven, there is this apparent battle and the, the righteous overcome by the, uh, by the blood of Jesus. But of course this is not talking about people actually located in heaven. This is talking about people on earth who are being falsely accused uh, of judgment seats uh, by Romans and uh, etc. And yet all that is being played out in, in heaven. So again, beyond the steely silence of the skies, there is a, a huge angelic system that is there considering our lives and playing out what's going on in your life and my life right in front of the throne of God himself. So in that sense, the judgment seat is sitting right now. Judgment, of course, is, is a metaphor. It's not to be pushed too literally. So when Jesus comes back and there will be the judgment, this doesn't necessarily mean that, um, like a human judge, sort of opens the books, hears both sides of the story and comes to a decision. I mean, God knows all the facts. The point of judgment is not to, to gather facts, because he knows them all. Um, and he is the judge, he is enthroned as judge right now. So, moving on to chapter 13, verse 1, he sees this uh, beast that has uh, seven heads and ten horns, and upon his head the name of blasphemy. In fact, the beast in Revelation 17, verse 4, is full of blasphemous names. Now, the Roman emperors sort of arrogated to themselves divine titles, very uh, blasphemous. They uh, applied all the sort of language of God and Jesus, Son of God, Saviour of the world. They applied all that to themselves. And the empire was full of these titles. Archaeologists have found them all over the Roman world, inscribed on public buildings, monuments everywhere. And yet, that name of Caesar is presented here as the name of blasphemy. Now, no wonder it's been observed that the, the book of Revelation was really an offensive and, and dangerous document to, to read or to uh, certainly to, to distribute, let alone to believe. And the names of the Roman emperors were to be greatly uh, revered. And in the first century, the cult of emperor worship really grew very strongly. And they say in verse 4, the, uh, the people on on earth, that is the unbelievers who worship the dragon, they say but who is able to make war uh, with the beast? Who's like unto the beast? He's invincible. You can't possibly fight against him. He's absolutely huge. There is no one who is able to make war with him. That's verse 4. But Revelation 13 is in its turn fleshing out uh, what we've read in chapter 12. And in chapter 12 we read that there was this war in heaven between the dragon and his uh, beasts. The beasts are kind of his supporters, as uh, Peter Watkins put it uh, many years ago, a, a kind of a publicity agent uh, for, the, uh, for the dragon. So anyway, the, the dragon and his supporters, that is these beasts that we start reading about and later on in chapter 12 and in chapter 13, uh, they've had a war with Jesus, with Michael um, and his angels who fought against the dragon. So there was a war, 
and that war was won by Jesus. And the dragon loses his power, and he's thrown out of heaven, that is, he loses his power. And here in chapter 13, that is expanded upon. It's like we see the, uh, the summary of what happened. There was a battle and between Jesus, uh, a war between Jesus and the dragon, and Jesus won. But now we get more detail about that, and we read in chapter 13, verse 4, as I say, that the, the supporters of the dragon say, well, who one's able to even make war with him? But for those who believed the heavenly perspective, they would have thought, well, that's, uh, that's ridiculous. Uh, of course you can make war with the dragon. Jesus made war with the dragon, and in heaven the victory had been given to Jesus. And the whole power of Jesus is so colossal. He is king of all the emperors of the world. That the, the idea of a war against Jesus is kind of almost laughable. Who's going to win? Well, of course Jesus is going to win. He is the king of the cosmos. And there's some little Roman dragon who wants to fight against him, make war with him. Well, of course, Jesus is going to win. And yet, on earth, people thought, wow, who can possibly make war with the beast? You can't. He's so powerful. And so, we who maybe are not persecuted, we who maybe are not stood up in Roman courtrooms, we have our battles. And it may seem that the power of the flesh, the power of this world, is simply so great that who can make war with them? Who can make war with your demons? Uh, I have this so often talking with, with alcoholics. I can't do it. It's too big for me. You see, you see, you see. People who spend their whole lives simmering just beneath the explosion point of, of anger and hurt over something or other that's happened because some system persecuted them. It could have been communism in this part of the world, or Soviet communism. It, it could be a persecution by your, by your in-laws. It could be the neighbours from hell who live, live next door, whatever. And it seems it's impossible. Who can make war with such a system? And yet, once we perceive the heavenly perspective, that all that has been played out up in heaven, and all things laughable, we have to win, with God and Jesus on our side. So, it seems so impossible? Yes, humanly speaking, if we only have an earthly perspective. Like for the, the people in the first century, they must have looked at the power of Rome and thought, well, who can fight against this? No, no, you can't beat them, so you better join them. But for those who believed the radical things that we've read here, the battle had been won. And further in verse 8, chapter 13, verse 8, Okay, all that dwell on earth worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb, who was slain from the foundation of the world. So we have the idea of predestination, foreknowledge from the beginning, introduced. And it's introduced not as a sort of an intellectual kind of problem for us to unravel, you know, what do you make of predestination, what do you make of foreknowledge and all that. It's introduced as a comfort. The comfort is that victory was ultimately assured for every one of us from the foundation of the world. On a personal level, each name uh, was written in that book of life of the Lamb from the foundation of the world. So, on account of the death of Jesus the Lamb. 
our salvation was assured. But it's those whose names are not written in that book who uh, are going to worship and support the dragon, who think, no, you can't beat him, so you better join him. And so the idea that we have been predestined is a comfort. It's a sign of God's love. Now when Paul starts talking in Romans about predestination and foreknowledge and all that, it's not that he's writing a letter and then he turns a, turns a leaf and thinks, oh, okay, you know, I'll start talking about predestination, why not? No, it's all in a context, and he's protesting God's eternal love for Israel when he starts talking about uh, predestination. And he's protesting or, or, or uh, encouraging us to believe in the reality of salvation by grace. That we're saved by grace? You want evidence of that? Predestination. What's that if it's not grace? The gift of God quite apart from our works. And so he introduces that idea here. Uh, in uh, Revelation, or John introduces the idea under inspiration here in Revelation 13. But this is a comfort to us, that we were foreknown from the foundation of the world, and everything in us fights and kicks and struggles against that, and, and, and we say, no, nah, how could that be? It's not fair that I was known, but the fellow next to me wasn't. Okay, this is the whole point of it, that there is no smart answer, like, give me an article to read, give me a link on the internet that explains it, can you? No, there isn't, that's the whole point of it that this is a senseless grace, a senseless kindness, that we were chosen. So then, this uh, beast has an image made to it, in verse 13, and it's the Greek word icon. And again, this would have been uh, seen as a definite uh, reference to how the Roman emperors, after they died, were divinized, they were made divine, they were turned into little gods and icons made of them. And when Christianity went wrong, uh, they started to take all these old Roman ideas into it, and that's why to this day in Russian Orthodox, Russian Orthodoxy and all the Orthodox churches, there, there is this huge emphasis on icons. So they made an image to the beast, and my point simply in this context is that um, he this would have been understood as direct uh, reference to the Roman Empire and the the cult of of Caesar worship. Verse 13, he he has a wound uh, by a sword, and yet he he sort of lives again. Sorry, that's um, that's the wrong reference there. Um, Sorry, verse 12, he has a, a deadly wound which is, is healed, and I, I wonder if that's talking about the uh, the mortal wound that uh, Nero inflicted upon himself in AD 68, um, yet he, he was perceived to have resurrected in uh, Domitian. Now, all this is, as I say, reference to what happened in the first century, particularly in the lead-up to AD 70. And then there's this difficult passage at the end of Revelation 13 about 666 and you can't buy or sell. Well, there was a time in Nero's reign when he forbade Christians to use imperial coins because they had images of Caesar as Lord on them. And he said, if if you don't accept me as your Lord and if you believe Jesus is the only Lord and Saviour, well... uh, you can't use my coins, so you can't buy or sell. 
And incidentally, when you read sometimes in the New Testament of Jesus, our only Lord and Saviour, you might think that's a sort of um, a sort of literary kind of flourish. Jesus, our Lord and only Saviour. But actually, those little words were were steeped in in really radical meaning because Caesar was Lord and Saviour. No. Jesus is our Lord and only Saviour. Only He is Lord and Saviour. So it was painful and it cost everything to accept Jesus as Lord in the first century. And as I say, in the time of Nero, you couldn't use imperial coins if you were a a Christian. And incidentally, the 666 business, this... uh, number of his name, that number of his name certainly does invite uh, us to think that we're to interpret this by uh, gematria, that is uh, the idea that every Latin and Hebrew and Greek letter had a uh, a value, Uh, every letter of the alphabet had a numerical value. And Neron Kaiser, Nero Caesar, adds up in in Hebrew uh, to 666, 666. And so, all the way through the New Testament, and particularly here in Revelation, there is the idea that Jesus is our only Lord and Saviour. Domitian demanded that he was worshipped as Lord and God. Dominus, Master, et, and Deus, God, Noster, our. Our Lord and our God. And so incidentally, when John records how Thomas calls the Lord Jesus after the resurrection, my Lord and my God, I think he he does that knowing full well that the Caesars demanded to be worshipped as my Lord and my God. And uh, of course Trinitarians have uh, misunderstood that verse, but I think that that's why this very exalted language about the Lord Jesus is used. Not because he was God himself in person in this kind of Trinitarian sense, but rather to highlight the point that it's not Caesar. That is, for us to be Lord and, in a functional sense, God, um, but it's Jesus. Jesus, I think, himself foresaw this when he says that you can't serve two masters, because Domitian demanded to be called Master, Dominus, And Jesus says, you you can't serve two masters. And so, to be a true Christian, to really accept Jesus as Lord, with all that that implies, this was really tantamount to being kind of part of a a criminal uh, conspiracy, a, a group that was trying to overthrow the government. And yet, we, in our day, are also asked to confess Jesus as Lord. And I don't think it can be any less painless for us. Of course, in terms of language, in terms of just those words, just as words, you can say, they are, yeah, I believe Jesus is Lord, and, and nobody would bat an eyelid, or might think you're crazy, but no one would bat an eyelid if I say, I believe Jesus is my Lord. But the implications of that are as radical for us as they were in the first century, if we are to do this properly if really in all sober reality he is Lord and only saviour and only master of my life not money, not my pension plan not my savings, not my career not my desire for financial security not my possessions, not my 
car or whatever it might be, not my coveted relationship with somebody um, that's the answer to, to everything. No. If Jesus is my Lord, if he is my only saviour, all that is nothing. He has taken dominance, mastership of my life. And so when we think of the fact that he died for me, this has huge implications because Peter and Paul bring it out very clearly that because he died as he did and because he was resurrected and ascended to heaven, he was exalted. And we must accept that exaltation and give him that exaltation. So from where then did people find the motivation to treat him as Lord and Master? Because of their recognition of what he had achieved in his death, in his, in his life, in his death, his resurrection, and the, the name that he has been given that is above every name, above the name of Caesar, above the name of your career, above the name of all your human ambitions in this petty little life that we have to live in one sense he is above all that because he has been given that name that is above every name and so it's not painless to be a follower of the Lord Jesus and it's not painless to recognize that he really is in all sober reality my Lord and my only Saviour thank you